second to serve here as family pastor. It's good to worship uh, our God in light of that finished, accomplished redemption uh, purchased for us by the death of Jesus. And uh, if you guys uh, have been coming for a while, you guys know that Justin, our, our lead pastor, he's out on, on sabbatical for the summer. Uh, so we're praying. We're excited for a time of, of rest, renewal, refocus for, for Jill and Justin both, and for their whole family. Uh, during this season, and uh, you also know, uh, if you've been coming for a while, that, that we've been uh, having some new faces, and last week we were joined by, by Bruce Barlow, and he's back again. He, uh, he decided to come back. We didn't scare him off too much, so, uh, and uh, if you were here last week, you know uh, that, that Bruce had some, had some challenging, but also deeply comforting words to, to share with us, and, and, I, and I'm afraid that you're in, in store for, for much of the same uh, this morning, so, uh, so, I'm going to pray for us as, as Bruce preaches. Bruce is from Winona Lake, Indiana, uh, and uh, he, yeah, it's just a, it's, it's been good to have him here and excited about this week and also next Sunday as well. So let me pray for our time in the Word, and then we'll, and we'll get going. So, Father, you are good to us. Uh, you, uh, in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our sin, in our flailing rebellion against you, you pursued us to the point of death on a cross in our place. You died the death we deserve to die, and then we're raised again so that we could have a new kind of life with you. So would you, yeah, yeah, I'll be right back. I'll be, I'll be right there, son, sorry. Uh, so would you teach us in the next half hour, Lord, what it means to walk in that newness of life? And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we praying and uh, God gets interrupted by another voice. Uh, that is sweet. Uh, thank you for having us here. It is so good to be here. Uh, we've noticed several things about this church family. Uh, one, we looked at the bulletin last week. We love what's on the back of the bulletin. We loved what was inside the bulletin uh, with the financial report. And we in Indiana are in the same kind of fiscal year at church. And you were like $79,000 ahead of budget as you, well, this is the last Sunday in the, in the fiscal year. That is awesome. The generosity that that represents is wonderful. And the teamwork and sacrifice together toward the vision and mission of the church uh, as a church family, that is awesome. So I applaud you. Way to go. That is great. We got to see the commitment to mission and vision yesterday, uh, that gathering at Soldotna Park was amazing. Just amazing. Uh, my one grandson was very disappointed. The hamburger line was way too long. <laughs> Good problem to have. Uh, to see the churches all come together and work like that, uh, I'm taking home the idea to try and imitate that and come up with something similar down in our community. And we loved Thursday night, the cookout time. I know not everybody was here, but seeing the kids playing and the young families and both our grandsons, uh, they came up on Wednesday. Well, they both met, met new friends Thursday night. And uh, our one grandson's going with the youth group on the hike this afternoon. And just the, the welcome's been wonderful. And just the body life that was going on Thursday night, uh, you got a good thing going here. Uh, keep leaning on the Lord and making that happen. Thank you for inviting us to be a part of it. Uh, we'll be here again next Sunday and then have to go back to the lower 48. The current count is 14. It's how many moose we've seen. For a week, that's really good. Yeah. Including a bull. 
with big rack. In Indiana, you'd never see things like that. Um, and uh, we also saw two brown bears, uh, a mom and her cub. And uh, we're keeping track of all the different wildlife and seeing some eagles and things that are, are amazing. And the scenery, we're from flat Indiana, flat. And so this is, every place we turn, we're like, look at that, look at that. I know you live here, you get used to it. You take it for granted. Uh, we all end up doing that. Okay, Matthew 18 is where we're going today. Matthew 18. Now, uh, last week we were on forgiveness. Every time we are sinned against, there's a choice to be made. We have the choice to keep score, seek revenge, be angry in our heart. We might not let show outside, but we've got the opportunity to, to uh, hold it against the other person. Or we have the choice to say, I'm going to pay the price. Yes, I was hurt. Yes, I was sinned against. But I'm not going to let that hold my heart back. I'm going to do what Jesus called me to. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. I'm going to make the choice to forgive. So we had a definition last week of forgiveness. And it was, forgiveness is the decision to release the person from the obligation that resulted when they injured me or sinned against me. Forgiveness is I pay what you owe. Now, we're going to come back around to forgiveness at the end of Matthew chapter 18 next Sunday. I'll give you a different, different definition of forgiveness that I think is just as good as this one and may fit your life circumstance better than this one. But here was the idea of I pay what you owe. Okay, I've made the choice. I'm going to forgive. I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm not going to keep score. Now what? I have to decide, do I restore the relationship? Can it be restored? Can the damage done by the sin be addressed? Can it be healed? Can our relationship, it may not be exactly the same moving forward, but can we restore the relationship? Because part of our nature is, okay, I'll make the choice to forgive. God's called me to forgive, but I just don't want to ever talk to them again. And it'd be fine with me if I never see them again. And I've forgiven. I'm not going to be better, but I'm going to ignore the relationship. Aren't you glad God hasn't done that with us? Oh, you want forgiveness for me? Oh, you want relationship with me? Okay, I'll forgive you, but I want nothing to do with you from here on. That isn't what he's done with us. He, he has restored relationship for us. And we face that choice. So this morning, we're going to look at the first half of chapter 18 in Matthew. And there's a thread through the beginning of this chapter. And I want you to look at it with me and see if you can pick it up. Matthew 18. So at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Inference is, uh, Jesus, which one of us is most special to you? His answer, he called a little child to him and placed a child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change, it's not natural. The natural is, 
I want to be the best. I want to be the most special. I want people to think such and such about me. You need to change and become like little children. If you don't, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. What's the point of the paragraph? Take the lowly position, humility. When sinned against, when sin's in the picture in a relationship, we tend to be proud. I've been damaged. You owe me. I hurt. Everybody needs to understand what I feel like. Nope. Take the lowly position. Then he talks about how serious it is when there's sin in a relationship. The relationship has been damaged or broken or marred by sin. And he has the child there and uses the child as the example. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, meaning in a broken world, we are forgiven sinners, but in a broken world, these things are going to come, but woe to the person through whom they come. That's a serious, serious thing, to be the one to cause someone else to sin, especially a child. Got a lot of families here with a lot of kids in the next building. And as you're discipling, the last thing you want is for someone to come along. And as you're discipling your child, say, no, that's not true. Here, you should think this way instead. And to lead them into stumbling into sin. Does it make you mad? Um... Our daughters from California, every private school, charter school, and Christian school has a waiting list. Why? Not going to have my child go and be indoctrinated and undermine the faith that is being planted by God in their heart. Is it a big deal to God when someone causes someone else to stumble, causes the damage done by sin and lies. Yes, it's a big deal. How big a deal? Keep going. Verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, meaning stumble into sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. How serious does God take the things that lead us into sin and damage relationship with him vertically and damage relationship horizontally? Chopping off an appendage, gouging out an eye, pretty serious. Why? Why is it such a big deal? Because his heart is to make sure that no one is lost to sin. 
No one is lost to the stumbling into sin and wandering off into sin. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? Then if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. When we turn back a few chapters, Jesus told a series of parables all about the heart of the Father, the Heavenly Father, going after the sheep that has wandered away into sin, the sheep that has stumbled into sin, is part of the flock, part of the family, and he's going to go after them, and he's called us to do the same to have the same heart. So I've decided in my heart, I'm willing to forgive. But now that question of, well, what's it going to take to restore the relationship? And should I care to restore the relationship? So uh, last Sunday, forgiveness. Yeah. Today, caring about the relationship more than the hurt or the damage done. So uh, he calls us to care about the person enough to deal with the damage done. That matches his heart in verses 12 to 14. So the first half of the chapter has said, it's a big deal. You're better off going for a swim in the inlet with a millstone around your neck than to cause another to sin. And then the whole sequence in verses 7 to 9. Seven, the mill, six, the millstone, seven, Woe to the person who causes a stumbling. Verse 8, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 9, gouge out your eye. If it causes you to sin, it's a big deal. Every follower of the Lord should make it his business to find the sheep that has gone astray to bring it back to the fold. Why? That matches God's heart. Sin does damage. It causes wreckage. There are consequences. Uh, broken relationships because of it. And after we make the choice to forgive, then we've got another choice. Do I take the step to try to restore it or not? So what does verse 15 say about that choice? Verse 15 says, yep, address the sin. So uh, Old Testament, when there was sin among the people, God sent a prophet. Our Old Testaments have long prophets and short prophets, and all of them did the same thing. Your relationship with God's broken. Things need to change. Come back to him. Come on back to what he's called us and empowered us to be. New Testament times today. Does God send prophets? Who does he use to come alongside us and say, uh, wait a minute, things need to change, something's not right here. Who does he use? The church, us, us. Um, so a few months back, 
Uh, we had a family situation that was really difficult, extended family. It involved lawyers. It involved a custody thing. And I was as angry as I've ever been. Um, very few people in church knew about it. But I've got a group of six men that are my prayer partners. We've been prayer partners, praying for each other's families uh, for probably about 10 years. So I'd sent a prayer request to them. Guys, pray for me. I'm really struggling attitude-wise. I am so ticked. Uh, and so we got together for breakfast, this group of men. One of them said, so, got your prayer request. What's up? And so I vented. And all the venom, all the garbage, all the ugly stuff in my heart just out on that breakfast table in that restaurant. And I let them know, here's what I'm going to do to that lawyer, and here's what I'm going to do when this is all settled. And um, one of them said, you're really angry. Duh! Uh, but he said it in a way, something needs to happen. And three guys around the table each took turns with, you got things to be angry about. There are things in this that are definitely wrong. But where you are going with this is a bad spot. And you can't go there. And we're here to tell you things need to change. So in our day, who does God use to come and get in my face and say, you can't go there? Uh, there are things to be concerned about, but you can't go there. It's the rest of the family. It's the family of faith. It's the body. I'm thankful I've got those men caring enough about my soul to say, time out. Stop. You're going to a bad spot. Don't keep going. Come on. We'll help you. God, in his grace, has given us those people. So what's he say in verse 15? If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that, he quotes Deuteronomy 19, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Now, some of you have a Bible with a couple of extra words. What's it say? If your brother or sister sins, anybody have against you? So we got into a good conversation at speaking team this week. If your brother or sister sins against you, well, it wasn't against me. I know there's problems, but since it wasn't against me, I won't go say anything. Um, the earliest manuscripts we have don't have the words against you. It's sin in general. And even if they were there against you, uh, Jesus in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount said, uh, you're there at the temple, you're making your offering, you're worshiping, and you realize, you remember that so-and-so has something against you. Means you've sinned against them. Uh, leave your gift there. Go. Who's to do the going? I am. And go, be reconciled, and then come back and make your offering. Continue your worship. I'm to go if it's my sin against them. Here, verse 15, 
if you do put the words against you, um, they've sinned against me. Who's to go? I am. I'm called to go. I'm called to have the same attitude of verses 12, 13, 14. Go seek that sheep. Go and point out their fault. Oh, that's fun. Awkward, messy. When do I go versus when do I just leave it alone? Maybe they don't even realize it was a sin or maybe I'm just making a big deal out of this. When do I just forgive and forget it versus when do I forgive and I go address it? Well, the answer is when the relationship has been damaged, I go and address it. So step one, verse 15, I address sin. Which sins? Here's what the early church had to deal with. Lying, laziness, refusal to work, refusal to support the family, incest, discrimination based on wealth, ethnic discrimination, gossip, doctrinal heresy, and divisiveness. Ooh, what a mess. We're forgiven, but broken. And as soon as we're in relationship, is there a marriage where there isn't sin, husband against wife, wife and vice versa? I haven't seen one yet. Within a family, can you have family members and extended family and not end up sinning against each other? I haven't seen one yet. Church family, can you come into relationship with each other and not hurt and sin against each other? I haven't seen one yet. And so we care enough about the relationship to go and have the messy conversation. Um, Why do I go? Oh, this is uh, the list uh, we stole from another church uh, as we're working on our policy, our elders, on, well, when would we want something addressed? What kinds of things should be addressed? Here's the list. It's coming from the passages in the New Testament to describe what the early church had to deal with, and it's adding a few in that we've had to deal with in our community and our church family. These are the things that we're saying. We love you enough and care enough about the relationship that we're going to come and have a conversation. Oh. Um, Who does it? Who does the going and talking? Um, Whoever is aware of it. It's typically going to be your community group, your gospel triangle, the people that are close enough to your soul to be able to say, Hmm, it feels like our last interaction, something isn't quite right. I'm not sure what's going on, but I care enough about us that I'm going to ask the question. We got into a long conversation this week uh, at speaking team about how do I go about this? Well, you don't do it on Facebook. You don't do it on Instagram. Uh, if at all possible, you talk face to face and you check yourself first. So there are passages, Matthew 7, log and the speck. Before I come and try and help somebody else, a brother or sister, with their sin, I've got to deal with the junk in me. Now what we do usually is we cop out with that. Oh, I've got still so much work to do on me, 
that I, I really am not ready to get around to addressing what's going on between us. Addressing someone else's sin. I've got enough of my own junk to deal with. That isn't what Matthew 7 says. It says, start with you and move into another person's life and soul. Galatians 6 says how we do it. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves. Or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So as we were talking about the how of going about it, we reminded ourselves, what's the goal? When he says, verse 15, if they listen to you, you've won them over. What, to my side, to my opinion? See, uh, you hurt me, or what you did is wrong, and I'm here to straighten you out. No, you've won them back to the family. You've won them back to the 99. So you do it gently. We had the question, uh, Pastor Danny said, well, how exactly do you go about that awkward conversation? Uh, I said, okay, how do you do it with a student? A high schooler, you know something's not right in their life. How do, how do you go about having a verse 15 conversation? He said, I ask a question. So that is great. It's asking a question. My perception is something's going on. Uh, something's not quite right. Uh, can you tell me what you think is going on? And is there something I can do to help? Because things aren't, just don't feel like they're right. How can I be of help to you? Asking a question like that is fantastic. It's having a heart to restore. See, after sin has done damage in a relationship, I either say, uh, I want to clean it up, I want to address it, I want to restore, or I say, I want to ignore it and just cover it over. We always have a choice. And my motive is to see the person brought back. I want my heart to match God's heart of when things aren't right. And, and he convicts us and says, come back. You need to confess, repent. I'm ready to forgive. Come back. I want my heart to match that in relationships that have been damaged by sin. See, uh, sin is never individual. We like to keep it that way, keep it secret, don't let anybody else know. It's just between me and God. That is never true. Talking to a guy recently, uh, decades of porn. His wife had no idea till she checked the phone records. And she found out she was devastated. Devastated. And he started figuring out, oh, who's been impacted by my choices? He lived for decades with, this is just me and God. Was that true? He told himself it was. But he was impacting his marriage, each of the choices he made. And he almost lost it. Then he said, I realize I'm now going to fight 
and either find my freedom in Christ now or I'm going to lose my family. I'm ready to fight. She said, I'm ready to forgive. They've got a lot of work to do. Sin is never individual. Uh, Another situation. There was an affair. The guy left his wife and his uh, son uh, married, remarried. He's remarried. It's two and a half years later and he sits all of us in the family down. Says, I now realize my sin didn't just affect me and my ex and my son. My sin affected all of you. Ripple effect. I sure wish he had figured that out earlier than the two and a half years. I had conversations with him right up front. This is broken relationship. This is awkward. How can I help? He said, you can't see ya. God worked two and a half years later. Uh, I want you guys to forgive me. I now realize it impacted everyone else. Sin is never individual. Here are some principles from Chuck Swindoll. I said uh, addressing the mess, addressing the sin, doing verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and show them their fault. It's loving. Ooh, but it feels unloving. You know, I'm going and saying, wait a minute, you need to straighten up. No, we don't go as the sin police. It's not our job to, hi, I'm here to straighten you out. It's another fellow sinner saying, things have been damaged. What can we do to, to see things restored? None of us respond well to, I'm here to straighten you out, and I've got it figured out, and what's your problem? But when we go as a brother or sister and say, uh, I know I'm just as prone to wander. I want you to come back. I want us to get back to what used to be. What needs to happen? What needs to change? Uh, it's loving. It is, you have to be courageous to do it. Be ready to be called intolerant, unloving, vengeful, legalistic. Because we're in a culture that the only thing that's wrong now is to tell somebody else they're wrong. Because that's seen as unloving. And he rightly says, no, you're unloving if you won't take the step to address what's gone wrong. It takes courage. Third, he says it's not optional. The text, not just here in Matthew 18, but also 1 Corinthians and Galatians, uh, it doesn't leave us the option, oh, yeah, that relationship, well, I'll just write that one off. Uh, we are called to address the sin. Uh, it's not punitive. I'm going to punish the person. Here, let me stick your nose in it. Let me tell you what was wrong. Let me tell you about the impact of that. No, it's restorative. I want to see things right here again. I want to see things right here again. And last, it's for insiders, not outsiders. 1 Corinthians 5 makes really clear. This isn't about uh, us being the the sin police for the culture, for those who don't yet know Christ. This is within the family of faith. This is those who have named the name of Jesus and chosen to follow him. It's, that's the point of 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13. 
that we love each other enough to come and have the awkward, messy conversation. When we do, if they listen and the relationship is restored, it's a win for everyone. This is awkward, messy, it's hard. Yep, but when there's restoration, there's celebration. That's the point at the end of verse 14. When the one sheep is brought back, the owner celebrates and rejoices over that. That's why it's worth having the hard conversation. Well, what about if they aren't won over? What do I do then? Well, verse 16, you take one or two others along and you try again. Who should go? Well, people that care about the person and want to see things uh, restored. Why go? Same goal, restoration. Win them back. See the damage done by sin healed, restored. Uh, One prayer partner, the guy in our church, the guy in our church, he was a jerk. Jerk and a half. Wouldn't work, wouldn't provide for his family, expected his wife to do everything. When he got upset with her, he didn't talk to her for a week. His punishment was the silent treatment. He was never physically abusive with her, but he was horrible. The guy that was one of his prayer partners said, I've talked to him over and over and over and over again. He will not change. He won't lift a finger. He, he refuses to, he's too proud. Remember the thread earlier in the chapter? Take the lowly position. This guy was too proud to confess and repent and be restored. So the other guy said, I need to take some others along. I want you guys to go with me. So we were all in a peer group, and five of us walked up, knocked on the door. And uh, we came in, sat down in their parlor, and he said, uh, what's this about? And the prayer partner led the way. And he said, I've talked to you that over and over again, and it's time now to bring others along. We're here to plead with you, beg with you. This can't go on. You are destroying your family. You are destroying your wife. This isn't what Jesus expects, wants, desires, has called you to. He says, uh, it's time for you to leave. I said, no, it isn't. No, you need to listen. This needs to change. This is wrong. You are destroying the people you claim to love the most. He kicked us out, threw us out. No repentance, no change to the day he died. Sad. Doesn't have to be that way. You take one or two others along. Why? Because we're going to fight for restoration. We're going to plead. We're going to beg to see the relationship restored. What happens if it still doesn't work? Well, verse 17, if they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. It's now the more formal step. You tell the church. Well, who? Who are you telling? You're telling the church leaders The elders, I love the little display on the back wall back here. The pastors and the elders. One of their most serious tasks, taught three times in the New Testament, their job to address the sin, 
to step in. So after you've done verse 15 and 16, then you tell the church and they do verse 17. And they plead and they beg. Same goal, win them back. See things healed vertically, horizontally. And the next few verses describe what happens. Um, We talked about this Wednesday morning a little bit um, with our church. When you say, tell me about your church. What do you like about it? What are its strengths? I hear often, well, it's WL Kids, Winona Lake Kids. It's a kids program. It's the student ministry. We call it EPIC. You've got lots of young families here. Obviously, strong ministry to families. Good. Those are strengths. Things to say, we're thankful to God. He's built that into what we are as a church. Have you ever heard anybody say, I'm thankful there that they do church discipline and they love me enough that if I'm stuck in sin, they'll come talk to me. Uh, I want our church family in Indiana to be that. I'd, I'd urge you to be that because one of the best things to strengthen the fabric of who we are walking with Jesus together is that willingness to address it, willingness to do the awkward, messy conversation. One church called it, uh, we think everybody that's part of our church has the privilege of being disciplined by the church. Privilege? But think about the goal. And think about the motive. And think about why it's worth having the messy conversation. Privilege. Privilege. Um, The next few verses. 18. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What is that supposed to mean? It's addressing the disciples here. Um, The Catholic Church has this. Binding is to say, uh, okay, it's wrapped up, it's done, you're permitted, you're invited, you're you're back in in the family, uh, and loosed is, nope, you're out. So that's why a tradition like the Catholic Church, you go confess your sin to a priest, and he has the authority to bind or loose, to say this sin has been healed over, forgiven, or it hasn't. What is it in our context? We don't have that from the Pope on down. What is it for us? That's what you have entrusted to the pastors and elders, saying, yep, I'm walking, following Jesus with this church family. Please, if I'm the person stuck in sin, Please come help me out of it. Part of their role. Binding, loosing. And then verses we've taken about prayer, we use these at prayer meeting. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is in the context of the binding and loosing of verse 18. For where two or three gather in my name, There am I with them. God's given authority to the church to take care of the sheep. And that's in the good days when everything's going great and growing. 
And that's in the hard, awkward, messy days when there's sin. And we say, come back. Come back. That authority is vested in your leaders for your good, my good. And what we take in verse 19 and 20, and we take it about prayer in general, this is in the context of church discipline, in the context of having to have those hard conversations, saying, where two or three gather and need wisdom, because these are hard conversations, these are awkward, these can be messy. Yep, God's going to give the wisdom so that there can be restoration, because that's his heart. And your leaders are imitating that same heart if they have a hard conversation with you, inviting you, come on back, come on back. We want to see things healthy again. So, what to do about it? Action steps. First one, if you're spiritually isolated, please beg you, stop being isolated. Get connected. Uh, we learned about the uh, getting to know Peninsula Grace groups that happen in the fall and the, and the winter. Um, I told you last Sunday, the last five marriages I've dealt with that, that blew up, ended up in divorce and damaged kids. All five. Common denominator of all ten spouses, isolated. None of them had anybody they were close enough to in the church family. No other follower of Jesus they were close enough to to be able to come alongside them and say, what's up? What's going on with you guys? I'm certain that if they had, some of those five would still be married. They were all isolated. If you're isolated, you've got great systems here, uh, structures in place for how do I find some others to be connected to? Community groups? Perfect. Way to get plugged in and get to know a group of other people who will get to know your soul well enough and love you enough and care about your soul enough to say, can we have a conversation? Seems like something's up. Can I help? Don't be isolated. Uh, the other thing you've got here is gospel triangles. We love that concept. A couple of other people. How do you start into one? Uh, you find somebody else in the church family here that you know is following Jesus and say, you know what? I want to follow Jesus and, and I want to get stronger in my following Jesus. Could you and I, it seems like you're interested in that too. Could we have coffee a couple of times? Have two, three conversations and see if this relationship goes somewhere. Gospel Triangle is a great structure. Second, who do you need to talk to? Somebody after first service said, yep, I know I've needed to have a verse 15 conversation and I have been just sitting on it. And now God is telling me to get off my, his words, get off my duff and act and have a conversation. Praise God. That's God's heart for us. Aren't you glad? Third, don't delay because it's awkward. Not going to get any less awkward down the road. I knew their marriage was not in a good place. 
For far too long, I had watched their interactions as husband and wife and felt very uncomfortable. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I knew something was up. I should have pulled him aside and asked him a question. Like, each time we're around you guys, things seem to be tense, awkward. Can we talk about what's going on? I'd like to know if there's some way we could be helpful to you guys. Would that have been an easy conversation? Nope. Awkward, probably messy. So I avoided it. I had finally summoned the courage and told myself, next time I'm with him, I'm going to address it. I'm going to ask him what's going on. But before I got the chance, his wife found out that he was in the midst of an affair, and two ugly years later, it ended up in divorce, that blew up their young family, had ripple effects on two congregations, and three extended families. If I had asked the questions earlier, would it have made any difference? I'll never know. I have no idea. But I know for certain that my avoiding the conversation, because it would be awkward, was a failure to love. And I continue to live with that to this day. Don't delay it because it's awkward. God, we come to you as people that want in our hearts to imitate your heart for us. You have a heart that goes after us and calls us back and is willing to deal with the mess when we get off track, when we have lost our way. We confess to you that we far too often figure it's somebody else's job. We don't want to get involved in the mess. We'd rather avoid it and just let the relationship take its course. And that's our selfishness, and that's our fear. And we're so thankful that you treat us according to your love and your plan for us, and you go after us for redemptive and restorative purposes. I pray for this church family that you will build into it a willingness to have the hard conversation, to love each other's souls so deeply that it's unthinkable to not do verse 15 and verse 16. Because we know the damage sin has done and we know your power to make things right again. It's that that gives us confidence to pray in Jesus' name. Amen.